The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Bibles back up to the place of our scripture reading a moment ago, Romans chapter 12. We read a moment ago, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We will review that to an extent here in just a few moments. I want you to realize with me that there had just been a very, very disturbing scene placed before his eyes. He had seen a man who had been murdered not only in front of a mob, but by that same mob. This same individual could even have been, and most likely could have been, accredited with giving the call, placing the order to have this man to be killed. And much like you can imagine if a mob were to ensue and continue and pursue to slay a man, this man was troubled. The man who was being stoned to death was obviously in severe pain. Obviously, emotionally, he was being broken. He was being tried. But spiritually, even though his body, you can assume, had already made its way down into that fetal position in order to try or to attempt to protect himself, he stood there spiritually that day as a giant. So much so that as he was exiting from this life, he looked up into heaven and he called upon the God of heaven to not hold any of the things that were being done to him to the charge of the men involved. But our character, who was at least a witness, if not involved in the murder, he now walks down a long and dusty road. You can assume in your minds at least as long as he was still in proximity of the death that in some sense within him he could still smell and he could still almost to an extent to a stint uh, taste the blood that had been spilled. He probably like we can assume at that time in his life was proud of what he had done. For he had done it in his own mind at least for nothing more than the cause of God. He in his mind had put down yet another one of those people who were involved in a sect of people who called themselves Christians. And he to an extent at that point in his life had to have been very satisfied with what he had just partaken in. I'm talking about obviously the Apostle Paul. But it was at that point that by whatever means and by whatever method, a blinding light shone shone before him. Coming down of heaven, it seemed the embodiment in some form, whether it be spiritual or material, the Lord Jesus Christ stood in front of him. And this man at that time, Saul, later known and referred to as the Apostle Paul, seemingly had no real idea what he had done. It was at that point that our Lord, standing before him, 
ask him but one simple yet even pointed question. Calling him by name not once but twice, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou, listen closely, me? It is hard for thee, Saul, to kick against the pricks. What do you mean by that, Jesus? In biblical day and in that time, just exactly what are you trying to illustrate? He says, Saul, every time you attempt to do harm to my people, you do that same harm, if not more so, directly to me. And every time you attempt to injure, to persecute, or even to murder one of my people, you and in some sense attempt to do that to me. But Saul realized this. You are kicking against the ox goad. That spear type implement that was often used to poke and to prod and in some cases to put down an unruly ox. And every time he had done so, so Jesus was explaining, you are not hurting me nearly as much as you injure yourself. And we understand that. We also understand the scripture reading we read a moment ago. We'll just review it for time's sake and for memory. It was later that man saw the apostle Paul who would write in the midst of what some have referred to as the little Bible of the New Testament. Perhaps the greatest treatise that has ever been accounted to faith, to doctrine, and to exhortation of a child of God, the book of Romans. And it's there in that middle to latter chapter of that book, Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul by inspiration wrote these words, not of his mouth, but out of the mind of God. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Verse 2 we emphasize. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. That is, be ye changed. Become something completely different and new. Something that was always there, but had never been allowed to blossom. And be you transformed, how is that? By the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so many times I've been guilty. I stopped reading right there. Verse 3, Paul says, For I say, through the grace given unto, and I've got this underlined, highlighted, circled, and boxed, but unto the grace that is given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according to as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. I want to ask you a couple of questions, and I, I don't care that you... 
Uh, don't answer with your hands, answer with your hearts. But I want to ask you a question very simply stated because I think we're going to see clearly it is the case with the Apostle Paul. Has God, more specifically stated, has our Lord Jesus called the Christ, has He changed your life? Has he actually changed, biblical speak, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, has he transformed your life? Better yet and better stated, I hold before me what I would call and what the Bible describes as, one, the perfect law of liberty. Described by James as that mirror in which we look. To see if we see not a reflection of self, but a reflection of Jesus in us. Has God changed, transformed my life? James Edward Merle. Born March 12, 1975. One who would like all of us lived to see a day when he would see ruin. But thanks be to God, the blessing and grace of God, we would not just see ruin, but have a remembrance of who created him. And be recalled, in a sense, to walk with Jesus again. Have we been changed? I've taken time the last several months, and I come up with all these ideas uh, uh, in my little finite, peanut mind, and I have decided the last few months, just for my own personal studies, I may or may not share these things with others, but for my own personal studies, to intensively take verses that are so familiar, such as Romans 12 and verse 2, be not conformed, but yet be a transformed change. And to let the Bible be its own divine commentary and to seek out passages that are connected to those things to determine exactly what that means. Now there's no doubt in my mind that I have and, and would before and would again, I should say, I could easily take Romans 12, 1 and 2, connect it to the passage that falls beneath it, verses 3 through about verse 12-ish of that, and I could easily describe to you, perhaps, in biblical speak, what it means to be changed, to be transformed by, the apostle says, the renewing of my mind or heart. But I also know that it is not just a letter an epistle or a book that does all of that. It is the grand result of the book, should I say this book, that actually allows us the ability and the opportunity to change. So I want you to continue in your mind. We'll move from it. But I want you to continue in your mind, keep recalling the fact that it was the inspired God, the God who inspired Paul, to pen those words in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And not only to reflect to us His transformation or change, but ours. And then I want you to go with me to a passage that will not be as familiar to you. 
And I want to show you from the text precisely and exactly the changes that God was able to perform in the life of Saul become Paul. So you're in Romans chapter 12. Turn to your right several pages until you get to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is where we're going to be for the majority of time this hour and most likely we'll gather back again this afternoon if the Lord wills at the 6 p.m. hour. Does that sound about right? 6 p.m. Uh, 5 p.m. Alabama time, which matters to me only. But we'll assemble back then and we'll probably continue in the same discussion because there's no doubt in my mind the context that we're about to ensue in studying is going to be much greater than we have time for now. But I want to show you these ways from 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. We'll eventually, Lord willing, get to verse 18. But 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, I want to show you at least three ways. There'll be many subheadings to this, but at least three ways in which we can representatively be sure that God was able to change Paul. And I promise you all of those ways he can change us as well. So I'm going to go ahead and list those out. You can jot these down if you want to take notes or something. That way if we don't get to them now, you'll have the afternoon you might want to review. Or even if we don't get to them then, you'll at least not be able to say, well, he never did tell me what the third one was or whatever. So I'll give you them. Number one, and these are very practical the way I laid them out, hopefully very memorable. Number one, you have to understand that it was on the road to Damascus and then ultimately when he met with Ananias and was told what he should do, that the Apostle Paul was changed from sinner to saint. That one's simple, that one's easy, but it'll be borne out in the text here of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Number two, understand that Paul also, in his being baptized, that is being resurrected through that baptism, having his sins to be washed away, was not only changed from sinner to saint, but he was changed in one sense from a showman to a show peace. You know, before that, Paul even mentions this in Philippians chapter 2, in the middle to latter part of it, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, Paul even gives what I would call his pedigree. He even lists out all the characteristics that he had that he could boast about. Matter of fact, it's my belief, you don't have to be your judgment, but it's my belief that at some point in Paul's life, Paul had boasted about those things. And part of which he boasted about was about the fact that he was a Pharisee. That is a man who liked to be seen, who liked to be in front of others, who liked to be a showpiece that some men would honor. But he would not only be that showpiece or that showman, he would be a showcase or a showpiece for God. And then the third one here we'll get to uh, at least this evening, Lord willing. The Apostle Paul was changed from being a silent sir to being a servant of God's. As we bear that out, you'll see all three of those cases, at least the opportunity for us to do the same. And we're going to have to cut into the context here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, or chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 11, but I want to encourage you when you get home, this chapter right here is one of those that basically... The whole chapter applies itself to the same subject. Paul starts out in the first ten verses reminding his son in the faith, he calls him Timothy, that he's going to have to stand up to some things. He's going to have to stand in defense to some things. And that there will be many things that are going to come against him. He's left him in Ephesus by now in a, in a terrible place physically. 
He's left them there in a city that spiritually was struggling and a church that was in the same condition. And he tells him that he has to be strong, that he has to stir up within him, that he has to be mindful of the gifts God has given him. But here in verse 11, beginning in chapter 1, 1 Timothy, he says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he hath, and you can go ahead and underline this, which he hath committed to my trust. Verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, underline that, for he hath counted me, underline that, faithful, putting me into the ministry. Verse 13, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I have obtained mercy, underline that, because I did that ignorantly and in unbelief. You can underline ignorantly, in unbelief, but make sure you emphasize the word in. And, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. We'll add verse 15 and start to develop this. And this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In the last hour, just by happenstance, we got down to the place where we mentioned about the case that it was possible that even though men may doubt someone's ability to be saved, even though a man may doubt personally and say, well, there's no way God would take me anywhere. God has no use for me because I've made myself useful or useless. Someone actually mentioned, and I appreciate it, I'm pointing at you, the Apostle Paul. And here we've got a man, the conclusion of what we read there in verse 15 at least, Paul clarified all that is said prior to verse 11 through 15 and says that I am among the sinners. As a matter of fact, I am the chief. So how does this account itself? Number one, backing up, I had you to list this a moment ago. The first thing we find that was a part of Paul's transformation offered by Jesus was he went from sinner to saint. Rereading there, verse 12, beginning, he said again, I'm reading the same exact context, 1 Timothy 1, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath, first phrase here, enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. I emphasize the term or the phrase there, King James speak, enabled me. There are a few things that Paul is able to do or was given the ability to do by Christ right here he lists out in the context. Number one, to come from sinner to saint, it had to begin with the power of God. He says the way that I was taken from being a sinner to what could be called a saint, the way that I was taken from what he ultimately lists out to us from being a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious person, is that it was the God of heaven who enabled me to do that. Let me say something clear about myself that I, I know you've discovered about yourself as well because you're Bible students. And that is I cannot do anything without Jesus. Nothing. 
You know, you think about what the Apostle Paul would say, and we're going to mention it later probably, but you think about what the Apostle Paul says, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13, probably the most familiar verse of the whole book of Philippians. And Paul says, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You know, it's easy in our mind, we quote the verse, but it's easy in our mind to think to ourselves, you know, I can do all things. I can just do all things. No. Paul wasn't present at the point in the time that this occurred, but I'm assuming in the review of what Christ was able to do for him as he would begin to preach the gospel, as he would begin to meet with Jesus as he did on the road to Damascus and then ultimately be taken in the city to Ananias who would do or would tell him what he must do to be saved. At some point, whether mentally or physically, it must have been communicated to him by Jesus what he had told his disciples, without me, you can do nothing. Now, the Apostle Paul had tried to accomplish much. He had tried to uh, d- delve into doing much for God and claim such. He even claims at one point, Acts chapter 22 and 26, that he does all those things in good conscience in his past. But here we have the power of God being revealed because he says, He hath enabled me. That Greek word that backs up the King James speak, enabled, actually is the exact same Greek word which backs up the word I just mentioned from Philippians 4 and verse 13 is strengthened. It's a Greek word that looks like, and I'm pronouncing this in Mumford Greek, not Grecian Greek, but it's a Greek word that seems to be pronounced something the effect of endunamo. You can kind of hear in that, the latter part of it, the root of the word dunamo, or we would say dynamite. It is God who gives me the power, the strength, Philippians 4.13, the ability and the enablability to be anything I am. Not the best thing I am. Not just some of what I am. But anything and everything I am. So reading the phrase a little bit more carefully here, he says he has enabled me. How did he do that, Paul? The scriptures describe it to us. Here we're reading there in verse number 12. And I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who hath enabled me. How is that, Paul? How has he enabled you? Keep on the reading. For for he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Keep up the reading. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was injurious, and I, verse 13, obtained, underline it, mercy, because I did it ignorantly and of unbelief. Verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Now, we may not get off of this point right here this morning for time's sake. But in thinking about the idea that he went from sinner to saint and thinking about just the first level of that, that it was done by the power or the enabling or the strength of God, there are several things that involved that Paul mentions. Number one, Paul says he enabled me how? He enabled me through his, that's God's mercy. You think about what Paul had done. And we know this not by this account, but by the record. Again, the book of Acts reveals it beginning in chapter 7, really. 
That's the account we mentioned earlier about the stoning of Stephen, Acts chapter 7, the latter. You think about what is stated about Paul in Acts chapter, nine, uh, Acts chapter 8, then later in chapter 9, and all throughout what he would do through those missionary journeys that he would be involved in, and through the recounting we've mentioned several times from Acts 22 and Acts 26 that he gives. And you wonder to yourself, could this man be saved? Is it possible that this man would be, I'll put a word in that's not biblical, but I think it's assumed, could it be that it is possible and even deserving of this man to be saved? By the power of God it is. Because the power of God begins, is balanced on, has a foundation that is contained in the mercy of God. I don't know exactly how you've heard this defined in, in many cases. I'm trying to uh, quote things that honestly I can't remember, so that you maybe you can quote better than I. But oftentimes you've heard mercy described as receiving that which you do not... No, that's wrong. Is receiving better, maybe we'll say it that way, than you ever deserved. Not getting maybe from God what you do deserve. I don't flip or flop much, but I, I, this has been months ago, although it should have been decades ago or years ago, but months ago I was just thumbing through. You know, you thumb through sometimes, and I don't think this is the best way to study your Bible, but sometimes you just thumb through and you come down and you say, oh wow, I hadn't read that in a while, and you read it and you're like, whew. Go with me to the book of Psalm. We're going to flip for this. Go to Psalm chapter 136. Psalm chapter 136. Go with me for just a moment over there. This, this is one of those things that when I read it, to be honest with you, the first time I read it, I got tired reading it. And I'll probably get tired reading it today. You know, because I'm dyslexic, I'll probably just cut this off and you'll be thankful. But I got tired reading it to begin with, and then I ended up going back and reading it again. And then again and again, and now it's one of those things where I just kind of highlighted and marked out. And uh, there's even a little tag I keep in my Bible right here on Psalm 136 because it's so important to me. Psalm chapter 136, beginning in verse 1. I'll, I'll emphasize some words, but I don't think it'll be very many of these. And you'll say, I know exactly what he's saying. Psalm 136 and verse 1. Here's what uh, David writes, of course, inspired of God as well. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Give thanks unto God, verse 2, of the gods, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 3, O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 4, to him is alone. And doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 5. To him that is by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 6. To him that is stretched out of the earth and above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made the great lights, for his mercy endureth forever to the sun to rule by day and for his mercy endureth forever verse 9 for the moon and the stars that rule by night for his mercy 
endureth forever. To him who smote Egypt and their firstborn, for his mercy endureth forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his mercy endureth forever. With a strong hand and with a stretched out arm, for his mercy endureth forever. Verse 13. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts, for his mercy endureth forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his mercy endureth forever. Which he, to him which led his people through the wilderness, for his mercy endureth forever. To him which smote great kings, for his mercy endureth forever. And if you'll scan down through verse 26, I promise you you'll see one more phrase. For his mercy endureth forever. Do I appreciate the mercy of God? Do I appreciate the willingness of God to be able and have the opportunity, if, he, if it were his will, to completely destroy not just my body but my soul? To completely give to me that which I have earned, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do I understand? Do I comprehend how much mercy God has given? That phrase, His mercy endureth forever is actually found more than a hundred times in the Psalms, but it's interesting to me that in this one chapter, 26 reasons are given. And I would challenge you, read that more slowly, more carefully. Think back about what you know about the Old Testament and the times and, and the past of David, even himself, and about the children of Israel, and you'll find out every single one of those has an account to back it up, that proves the entire storyline of the Bible that comes through saying one thing, God's mercy endures forever. That's the power of God. We go back to our text because that is just the initiating power of God. What about the motivating power of God? Look, at, look back with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We were reading there and discussing verse 12, how he enabled me and the means by which he enabled me. And he starts out there in verse 13 to say, in spite of the fact I'm a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an injurious person, I, number one, obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly of unbelief. And the next word, verse 14, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. That's the second level. He enabled him not just by mercy, but he also enables him by grace. Now when we define biblically, typically, the grace of God, we might define it by using terms we don't use on the street on Monday, but that is the unmerited favor of God. The undeserved 
favor of God. Is there an undeserving person in the world? By man's uh, account, oh yes. In the account here, and in the account that was read a moment ago, uh, or mentioned a moment ago from Acts chapter 7, and the stoning of Stephen, and how we learned in Acts chapter 8, the first two verses, it was the Apostle Paul who stood by and held the coats of those who were doing the stoning. Most likely had given the consent, biblically, had given the authority over to have this man to be stoned. To become the first, we would call him, Christian martyr. That is, one who would die for a cause. The Apostle Paul was there. In our minds, would a man like that deserve the mercy and the grace of God? No. But he says, God enabled me. God allowed me to have that grace. I'm mindful of what he said, and we won't turn to it for time's sake, but I encourage you again, be very familiar to as well. But think about what he said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you're saved. Through faith. For it is the gift of God, not a man, lest any man should boast. And by the way, you need to read that whole context. Don't allow yourself to be like so much of the religious world and take verse 8 and say, Well, there it is. That's the end of that. Grace and faith is all I need. Move on. No. That's a portion. That's a part. But isn't God's grace as good as that? Notice the next one here. It's not only through mercy and grace, and I'm using words right off the page. He said that he was that blasphemer. He was that injurious person. It was through mercy, verse 13. It was through grace. He says, of our Lord, and was exceeding abundant. I've, I have I boxed this one and highlighted it and all, all together in. Uh, let me see if you can see it right there. Verse 14. I've marked this one up every way I could, especially last night. You know, Jeff called me at 4 o'clock, and we were about to go out. Uh, to supper we were blessed to do that and so I got home about 10 o'clock and so this was about 1 o'clock I was doing this but faith how did Jesus save Paul by faith how did Jesus and I'll read it again specifically and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with Faith and love, which is in Jesus Christ. We say, well, that goes, that goes uh, to two or three possibilities, right? One is that it was the Apostle Paul that had faith in Jesus. That's, that's undeniably true. One, it was that the Apostle Paul, next phrase we'll mention in a moment, had a love for Jesus. Well, uh, that wasn't true in the beginning, but it became that. But I want to ask you just to, to consider this is my judgment, doesn't have to be yours. I've said before, probably don't quote me from your notes. Okay, so don't go out and say, Jim said this. Jim ain't said this. The Bible's saying this, and I'm just repeating something. It seems that even though it is true that Paul had and, and obtained a faith in Jesus, and Paul obtained a love for Jesus, that existed in Jesus before it existed in Paul. That is... Jesus had faith in Paul. In the last hour, we were, we were kind of coming down the page, getting down the page there in Philippians chapter 1. We got there to verse 6, and Paul starts telling about the confidence that he had, the expectation, the surety that he had that if God begins a good work within us, he can and will finish it. That's what he did to Paul. 
Paul is injurious. Paul's a blasphemer. Paul's a persecutor. But it was because of the mercy of God that he received the grace of God that he had the faith of God. Now, his faith is directed toward God. But in some senses, God's faith was directed toward him. Who in this life believes in you more than God? I, I can wait. Who believes in us more than God does? Who has more faith in us than God does? You see that shape? Let me see if I can do it a little bit more correctly. It's a little oblong. That's a zero. But you really, to understand this, you've got to rub the edges off and see it's nobody, nothing. Our friends may believe in us. Our family may believe in us. Our co-workers, our acquaintances, all these people around us may say to themselves or maybe even to us, you know, I just, I believe in you. I believe one day you can do right. I believe one day you can make the right choice. I believe one day you can serve God faithfully. I'm praying for you. I'd love to study it with you. I'd love to discuss it with you. We may look in the mirror one day and see that corrupt person that we are and that perfect law of liberty and the reflection that comes upon us, be it not Jesus, but be it that of the devil. And say to ourselves, you know what? I just wish, I just pray, I just hope one day I can be the person I've always needed to be and desired to be. But sometimes that reflection just doesn't come back as we would desire. And we may stand back and say, you know what? I can't even trust myself. I don't even have any faith in myself to do what's right. God does. And Paul said it. He said it was by the mercy of God. That's the enabling power that is offered. He said it was also by the grace of God. Again, a part of that enabling power that is offered. He said it is by the faith of God. Yes, God believed in him. He believes in all of us. But he also added, we just mentioned it because we tied the phrases as the scripture did, it was by the love of God. I believe in my life, that there have certainly been times in my life when I have loved God more than I do right now. That shouldn't be true. It ought not be. But sometimes it is. You can take any moment in your life and just zero in on it, delve into it, run it through a funnel, through the strainer, and look there at that minute moment, that section, those, maybe it's minutes, maybe it's seconds of your life, and you could say to yourself, I love God more right then than I do right now. If you're honest with yourself, that may be the case. But if that is the case, I'm a backslider. If I've ever loved God more than I do right now, then I have backslidden to that place. But the beauty of it is, it's no matter how great my love may be for God, God's love for me in my direction is greater than that. You ever had a human relationship? Um, especially in marriage, this occurs, uh, if you don't know this by uh, hour one of marriage, you'll know it by year whatever blank that at one or more points you will look to your spouse or maybe you can put a friendship with this, be the same, and you'll think to yourself, you know what, right now it's hard to love them. And, and, and you may say, if you're a Christian, 
in a, in a Bible study, you may say, well, I just have to say that different, though, because I don't want to be wrong. I'm commanded to love them, especially husbands toward their wives. So I just have to say I don't like her right now. You know, God never gets to that place. Never looks at me and says, I just don't love him. Don't care about him. Had nothing for him. Why? The scriptures tell us very plainly. Certainly the application went to Paul. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is that? That is the love of God being expressed. So where are we? We're discussing the fact that the Apostle Paul was able to go from sinner to saint by the enabling power of God, which God laid upon him through his mercy, his grace, his faith, and his love. And if you were to be thinking of the outline I've got in my mind, you would know we're about 26 points from the end. So we're going to pause. But I want to question you about something. Better yet, I want to question me. Has God turned me from sinner to saint? And by saint, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. That's not possible for us. But I mean by that, has, has God allowed me and given me through His enablement the opportunity to be what a saint is, and that's the, length, the lengthier version of the word, one who is sanctified, that is literally biblically, one who is hagios, that is set apart. She don't know about this. That's Siri talking. I don't know what's wrong with her today. Has God done that? Maybe I need to step back. Because the truth is God desires to do that. Have I determined to allow that? If I am not allowing myself, and it would be allowance here, to take on the acceptance of God. That is by allowing Him to enable me to be transformed, to be changed from sinner to saint. Today is the opportunity for that. You know how blessed we are that we are commanded. That is a command. It is laid out plainly. It is exemplified throughout Scripture that we gather together on the first day of the week. We even refer to that as the Lord's Day. We gather together and we worship. We do many things during that. We do at least five things there that are either explicitly commanded upon that day or at least been made expedient for that day. Not the least of which is we partake of the Lord's Supper. When we partake of that Lord's Supper, what are we actually doing? We're communing with God. We're remembering God. We're remembering the death that Jesus suffered. 
that broken body, that shed blood, are the emblems that we use. They're nothing more than an imagination, or I should say a memorization, a commendation, and even in some senses a celebration of what God did for us. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God. The opportunity is yours. What the Apostle Paul had to do, not mentioned here, but it was a part of his past and certainly a part of his present, and I know a part of his potential, that the Apostle Paul allowed himself to believe on God. That was the command to do that. He allowed himself in turn to repent of his sin. He had done that by this point, by this account. He had long gone, turned his back on the life that he had lived before in the world and had turned himself to fix eye and focus on God and him alone. To be willing to confess his name. You know, there's no doubt in my mind to an extent, although he didn't realize it, when Paul was laying there in the road to Damascus, when he was blinded, when he made that quick statement, that was his first question to Jesus, Who art thou, Lord? Maybe he didn't comprehend, maybe he didn't know. But he would come to understand who his Lord was, his master. And then when he met with Ananias, and Ananias told him, Why tarest thou arise? Go thy way, be baptized. Washing away thy sin, watch this phrase, calling on the name of the Lord. What did he do? He fulfilled the commands of God. And he received the mercy, the grace, the faith and the love of God in doing so. And so can we. If you're here this morning, it is your invitation. We're going to sing an invitation song in a moment to encourage you, to try to motivate you to serve God today, maybe for the first time. But if you're more like I am, and you're more like, say, the Apostle Paul, continuing to be faithful to God is a daily part of our lives and can sometimes be a struggle. But we are always blessed that we have the ability to be changed from that sinner into that saint. And you can come home today while together we stand and as we sing.